please remain standing and pray with me. Father, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, come, renew and refresh and restore us to faith, faith that is alive, faith that is everlasting. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. not sure why, <clears throat> but during my sermon prep time this week, I did not get as emotional as I am about this passage today. There is hope for all of us, each of us. Come, Lord Jesus. Many years ago, I was assisting with the relaunch of a small mission in a small uh, town in Central Florida. I'd lost my job. We were financially dependent on that. See, I remember these things. Because I was, as I have always been, a bivocational clergy, so I had no income. Needless to say, it was a very stressful time. Our prayer life and much of our conversations centered around speaking, seeking and believing for a new position. One Sunday morning, a lady came up uh, to me from the congregation and said, you need to pray more. You aren't praying hard enough. You must have greater faith. Well, in words that St. Paul may have used, I was sorely vexed with her <laughs> assessment. How often is it that we pray and hope for something and there seems to be no answer, no result? In today's gospel, the Syrophoenician woman must have been sorely vexed. Here she is, a very concerned and worried mother. Her daughter is demon-possessed and is getting no better. She had a deep, deep sorrow which motivated her to make every possible effort to see her daughter healed. This woman had most likely taken her daughter to all possible resources for healing. The reality is that there had been no relief, no healing. It seemed that all had failed. But we remember at the end of today's gospel, Jesus tells the woman, great is your faith. What made her faith great? What made her faith alive? Faith comes alive when we have humility, trust, and perseverance. This woman demonstrated all these attributes. There is an anonymous saying that goes like this. As humility goes deep down, 
faith rises up high and strong, for humility furnishes the roots by which faith holds on to. As humility goes deep down, faith rises up high and strong, for humility furnishes the roots by which faith holds on to. This woman came to Jesus with great humility. She may have been thinking, I can't do this on my own. I've tried everything. My daughter's the important one here. I'm willing to take great risks to see her healed. Here is a Palestinian woman, a pagan presumably, who had significant social and cultural obstacles to overcome. In the eye of the Jews, she belonged to the most hated of all Gentile races. There was a barrier of hate and contempt which she had to cross, an obstacle far wider than any distance between Tyre and Palestine. She was a heathen and had only received God's word indirectly through the prejudicial information gathered from the Jews. Yet, it did not keep her from finding her way to the great teacher of the Jewish nation. This distraught mother came to Jesus, trusting that he would do all that she had heard. She lays it all on the line. She puts herself and her daughter in Jesus' hands. Even after the rebuff from Jesus, she believes that he will do what she so desperately seeks. So here's this woman acknowledging Jesus as Lord, presumably as her personal Lord. She recognizes Jesus for who he is. She calls him Lord. She knows he's the son of David. And the way she says it implies that she isn't just talking about his ancestry. She might as well have called him the Messiah. Even though she had learned to take a very humble view of herself and trust the outcome of her petition to Jesus, she had to persevere. Her loud cries and attempts to get Jesus' attention seemed to go on without acknowledgement, except for the disciples who implored Jesus to send her away. I guess maybe she was causing them to have headaches or something. She could not help but feel that they would gladly be rid of her. But it's not from them she seeks the answer. She will take her dismissal from none other than Christ himself. Sometimes we must continue with the intensity of our prayers even when others around us may seem reluctant to encourage us. Or maybe even they might suggest that we should accept the status quo and go on with our lives. See how this woman wrestled with our Lord. Jesus was trying to get away for some rest. She had anticipated his coming, and she was all alone in her effort seeking his aid. She had to force herself into his presence. Christ could not escape from the faith of this woman, even though the disciples tried to stop her. Again, 
she showed her humility and tenacity. She fell on her knees before him in humility and cried out in desperation, Lord, help me. This woman invoked the humility of one who has become desperate. In the words of the old hymn, she was saying, it's not me, or it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my mother, not my father, not my brother, not my sister. It's me. She must do all it takes to see her desires and prayers answered. And what does Jesus do? He ignores her. Does that sound like the Jesus you know? Ignoring a woman who is obviously in pain and great need? Well, if we did that, we'd be accused of being heartless. Why was it that Jesus ignored her? Perhaps he remained silent because he didn't want to stifle her faith. Perhaps it's because he was waiting to see what she would do. Would she give up? We find that the woman isn't put off. She kept shouting. So Jesus dealt the killer blow. He said one of the most politically incorrect things in the New Testament. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He dismissed her because in that culture she didn't matter. She didn't reign. She wasn't a Jew, so his message was not for her. Instead of giving up, she came and kneeled at his feet and begged him to help her. Now, she had stopped shouting by this time because she saw that Jesus, with his response, was beginning to interact with her, that little light at the end of the tunnel. So she began to speak quietly. Then what Jesus did seemed to add insult to injury. He said, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. It was a common insult to call Gentiles dogs in that day. <clears throat> However, the word Jesus uses for dogs here isn't as bad as what it could have been. He uses the word for little dog or house dog or puppy rather than the word that was usually meant that something like meant like a mongrel, but it still didn't sound very nice, did it? Is Jesus simply testing the woman? Her desperation leads her to overlook the personal insult in Jesus' words and to hang on to the positive side of what he said. And so she replied, Ah, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. That's an incredible insight, I think. Don't you believe that? Think about it some more. Is she saying that she doesn't even need his full attention to be blessed by him? Just a few crumbs of attention would be sufficient. Lawrence Justinian, first bishop of Venice, in the 15th century, resembled this woman in the prayer he offered when he was at the point of death. He said, he prayed, 
I dare not ask for a seat among the happy spirits who behold the Trinity. Nevertheless, thy creature asks for some portion of the crumbs of thy most holy table. It shall be more than enough for me. Oh, how much more than enough. The crumbs from the table. Here Jesus was so impressed with this woman's faith that he agreed to her request. In this woman's case, her faith had overcome the discouragement of the hostile disciples who wanted to get rid of her and shut her up, as well as the discouragement that came from Jesus' own words. I wonder if her faith saw through the cultural obstacles, the disciples' attitudes and Jesus' objections. Did she see the real issue? That the gospel is great enough to benefit all people. That no one, Jew or Gentile, needs to miss out on its benefits. The Syrophoenician woman got what she came for. Jesus said to her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So what does this woman of Canaan teach us? She teaches us that we should pray with great humility. She acknowledged herself to be a dog. She made her supplication on her knees. She did not say, heal my daughter. She said, help me. We are to acknowledge that without God's mercy, we are helpless and lost. The prayer of humble access, which is found in our Book of Common Prayer, points us to the way we should approach God. It says, We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. In addition to humility, we should approach the throne of grace with confidence and trust. We must present our case in reverence and devotion, but we must understand that Jesus will respond as may be best for us. Although a Gentile, she had a firm hope that she would be heard by Christ and trusted that he would heal her daughter. Trust. Then with humility, confidence, and trust, we are to pursue the heavens with constancy and perseverance. Constancy and perseverance. This Canaanite woman persisted when she was twice repulsed and yet became more earnest in her prayer and petition. God will grant our requests in his own time and in his own way, as it falls within his plan for our lives. Please remember, God is sovereign, and he desires the best for us. The Canaanite woman points us to a greater resource than human love. It's God's infinite mercy in the person and work of Jesus. 
He was God's love in action for her and is now the same for us. When she cried out to Jesus, she did so because she knew who he was and what he could do. Do you trust him? How do we acquire this great faith? I bring you the words of Bishop J.C. Ryle, written in the mid to late 19th century. He said, Nothing will ever enable you to choose God before the world except faith. Nothing else will do it. Knowledge will not. Feeling will not. A religion that is to stand must have a living foundation. And there is none other but faith. There must be a real belief that God's promises are sure and to be depended upon. A real belief that what God says in the Bible is all true. And that every doctrine contrary to it is false. Whoever may say it. There must be a real belief that all God's words are to be received however hard and disagreeable, to flesh and blood, and that his way is right and all others wrong. This there must be, or we will never come out of this world, take up the cross, and follow Christ and be saved. We must learn to believe promises better than possession, things unseen better than things seen, Things in heaven, out of sight, better than things on earth before our eyes. The praise of the invisible God, better than the praise of visible man. This was the faith by which the saints of old obtained a good report. This was the weapon by which they overcame the world. This made them what they were. How does this apply to us today? What will develop in us the faith demonstrated by the Syrophoenician woman and the saints of old? We must look to Jesus. We must look to Jesus. There are three points of view from which we should look at Jesus Christ. There's a backward look, an upward look, and the forward look. The backward look is Jesus on the cross. We must continuously, without ceasing, look back to Christ's death for peace, pardon, and salvation. What will we see as we look at Jesus on the cross? We will see the eternal Son of God suffering, bleeding, agonizing, dying in order to pay our soul's debt and make satisfaction for our sins. And as we look upward, we look upward to Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, we must look daily to his life of intercession in heaven as our principal provision of strength and help, our mediator and advocate. Let our faith's eye see Jesus as our priest in heaven and rejoice in the sight. What will you see there? You will see the same Savior who died for you, exalted to the place of highest honor and doing the work of an intercessor and advocate for your soul. All was not done when he suffered for your sins and mine on Calvary. He rose again, 
and ascended up to heaven to carry on there the work which he began here on earth. There, as priest and representative, he ever lives to make intercession for us. We can find comfort and strength in this in the daily battle of life. What thought more encouraging than the thought that Jesus is ever looking at you and watching over you? What idea more strengthening than the idea that you are never alone, never forgotten, never neglected, never without a friend who is able to save the uttermost to the uttermost, all them who come unto God by him. And we look forward to Jesus' coming again at the last day. During this time of pandemic, social unrest, and political turmoil, we so much long for peace, healing, concord, and the restoration of good in our world, our neighborhoods, and in our families. We must look forward to his second coming with true hope and consolation, faith and hope in his appearing, faith and hoping that we and his creation will be renewed and restored at the creation, the resurrection. Hope and consolation are so critical during these uncertain and trying times. Hope and consolation in his reappearing. Please listen to the following quote. Who can look abroad at public affairs all over the globe and avoid the impression that this old bankrupt world needs a new order of things? The cement seems to have fallen out of the walls of human society. On all sides we hear of restlessness, anarchy, lawlessness, envy, jealousy, distrust, suspicion, and discontent. The continuance of evils of every kind physical, moral, and social, the constantly recurring revolutions and wars and famines and pestilences, the never-ending growth of superstition, skepticism, and unbelief, the bitter strife of political parties, the divisions and controversies of Christians, the overflowing of intemperance and immorality, the boundless luxury and extravagance of some classes, and the grinding poverty of others, the strikes of workmen, the conflict of labor and capital, the shiftless helplessness of statesmen to devise remedies, the commercial dishonesty, the utter failure of mere secular knowledge to regenerate mankind, the comparative deadness of churches, the apparently small results of missions at home and abroad, the universal distress of nations and dread of something terrible coming. These strange phenomena and symptoms, what do they all mean? Yes, what indeed? They all seem to tell us with no uncertain voice that the world is out of joint and needs a new administration and a new king. Like a crying infant in the arms of a stranger, the world is ever fretting and wailing and struggling, though it hardly knows why, and will never rest 
and be quiet till its rightful parent takes it in hand and puts the stranger aside. As Plato makes Socrates say in one of his dialogues before the first advent, we must wait for someone, be he God or inspired man, to give us light and take away darkness from our eyes. Even so, we Christians must fix our hopes on the second advent and look and long for the rightful king's appearing. Would you suppose that was written last week? Well, it was written by the good Bishop J.C. Ryle in the mid-19th century, 1800s. So what should we do about all of this? We must keep developing our faith. We must continue to come to Jesus in humility and with perseverance. We must keep on looking back to Jesus on the cross. We continue to view him as our mediator and advocate seated at the right hand of the Father. We will renew our hope with the knowledge and belief that he is coming soon to gather his people, you and I, to himself. Christian, take heart. Our faith shall soon be changed to sight and hope to certainty. Looking to Jesus on earth by faith will end with seeing Jesus face to face in heaven. With our own eyes, we will look on the head that was crowned with thorns, the hands and feet that were pierced with nails and the side that was pierced with the spear. We will find that seeing is the blessed reward of believing and that looking at Jesus by faith ends with seeing Jesus in glory and living with Jesus forevermore. When we awake, we will be in his likeness and shall be satisfied. There we will hear Jesus say, Great was your faith. Enter into the joys of God the Father. In the words of an old hymn, O eyes that are weary and hearts that are sore, look often to Jesus and sorrow no more. And another song we often sing is, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.